0: It takes code sometimes up to a year to hit production. A healthy retro is you're gonna talk about some of the successes, some of the fun things that have happened that week. You're gonna talk about some of the things that like bothered people. I'm a big fan of talking about feelings at work.
1: Yeah, it just goes to show that like, there's no one answer to anything.
0: That's one of the things that I love about working on developer tooling though, is that like, it kind of makes it your
2: job to fail, so then your customers don't have to fail. Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Olicast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market.
1: For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollycast.
2: That's o 11 ycast Olicast. So, you've been at one company for a while. How many teams have you been on? So, I've been at Pivotal for about four years now, and I've been on
0: nine teams. Uh, nine teams? Nine teams, yeah. I probably hold the record for most teams uh, in, Ever? in four years, <laughs> uh, but it's not unusual I think most people who've been here four years have been on three or four teams. So you have a culture of team switching
2: internally. Yeah, Yeah, we we try to de-silo, we try to have high bus numbers. Yeah, and it's not that foreign to me because I served on something like 10 teams in 11 years at Google, so Mm. it really depends upon how your team is set up and how your organization is set up. What do
1: you think you two have in common?
2: I think that when you seek out kind of growth opportunities, when you start saying like, hey, I'm feeling comfortable, right? Make yourself not comfortable again.
0: Oh yeah, I hate that. I get bored and then I start looking for ways to entertain myself. And nobody likes that. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) Nat, this sounds like a great time for you to introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Nat Bennett. I'm a software engineer at Pivotal. What do you work on at Pivotal? I work on Cloud Foundry. So those nine teams have all been different Cloud Foundry component teams or release engineering teams. My number's a little bit inflated because the first team that I was on was a one pair team testing the high availability features of Cloud Foundry during the one four to one five upgrade, I think. So we just spent like six weeks messing around with Gatling and looking at which parts of it go down when so you're upgrading. What's
2: kind of the difference to you between a project and a team?
0: So in the pivotal context, like a team is a group of engineers who are all pairing with each other and are rotating on a daily or weekly basis. We have tried to do project teams; they always turn into like long-term things. I feel like the career trajectory of a build engineer is not really well understood. What does one do? So the team right now is split into two pieces. We. Take input from all the other teams. Uh, they're like pushing artifacts, artifacts, uh, yeah, into our system and then running it through a pretty massive series of build pipelines that are running a bunch of different tests. Fresh deploy, upgrade, deploy, deploys across a bunch of different and you Own
1: the code all the way from the time that it's committed until it's deployed to users.
0: Uh, what do you mean by own
1: the code? Are you the one who says whether it goes or gets bounced back?
0: Kind of. Usually if it gets bounced back, what we'll do is like open up a cross-team pair and try to figure out what's going on and what's wrong. How many developers would you say that your team of release engineers supports? 100, 200. I know that the Cloud Foundry development organization is about 400 engineers. So. And how many of you are there? <laughs> there are... 15 total if you count both the open source and the closed source release engineering.
2: You have a different problem than a lot of people have, right? In that you're not just releasing something that you run in your own production environment, you have to build things that other people can just take and run, right? Yeah.
0: It takes code sometimes up to a year to hit production, real production, like customers running into production, because we have a quarterly release cycle, so that's going to take like often at least three months between somebody writing code and it getting shipped. And then our customers are mostly large enterprises, big banks conservative often. Conservative uh, types. Yeah. Well they you know, there's there's a lot of risk. They're
2: handling millions of people's I money. I'd like uh, them to be
1: conservative with my money. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So how do you build confidence then, right? You know, we talk about the idea of shipping as lifeblood of being able to test things early. How do you test things at Pivotal?
1: And how do you maintain that, that sense of the lifeblood of your, the urgency, you know, shipping things? Like if, you're, if you only have a release once a quarter, do you have internal releases or things that kind of like create a more regular cadence for people to ship regularly?
0: Yeah, so one thing is that we have a couple of sources of internal feedback. If you've used Pivotal Tracker, mm-hmm. you're using an application that's running on a so dog food. PCF. Yeah, that's um, the EU operations team. Hi, James. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, runs that and gives a lot of feedback. Like They do things, uh, provides a lot of feedback about things like uh, how long upgrades take, for yeah. instance, which is something that's hard to get. We also... We're just now firing up uh, and starting to get feedback from this thing called telemetry and insights where we're getting stats back from customer Ooh, sites. For in the wild. Uh, yeah, so now we're able to see things like What versions are people actually running in dev versus production? Like sources of truth from production,
2: right? Like it's amazing when you get them. We found out some of the settings that people always change and some of the settings that people never change. Uh, (laughs) I think that it's really fascinating to think about so how do we observe our production systems, right? And for you, to an extent, your production systems are the end product, but also you are a build engineer, right? Like, you have production systems too. What are your production systems like then? Concourse. Uh, Yeah. I hearing about this. (laughs) Funnily enough, I was pairing with a bunch of people over at Meetup a while ago, and they use Concourse because they're staffed by a whole bunch of ex-Pivotal people. Nice.
0: Yeah, we uh, we go places and uh-huh, do things. <laughs> sort of absorb people into the hive mind. To... Uh-huh. So Concourse is a continuous integration system. It's really a I just picked this up yesterday. Continuous verification. It's a continuous thing doer, and it lets us build these gigantic pipelines and control what versions of things are moving through it and what. Tests versions of things have to have passed before they move into the next stage. Uh, And they let us orchestrate these like deploy across a bunch of different scenarios, run
2: tests, tear down. So how long is a typical Concourse pipeline for you? You're probably one of the more sophisticated users, but
0: Yeah. So for release engineering, it takes if nothing goes wrong, it takes about 2 days to run an artifact through our pipelines. Wow. So the amazing thing about build engineering that I've always been fascinated
1: by is the way that you touch everything and everyone, mm-hmm. right? Maybe this like feeds your 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 itch to jump teams a little bit? I don't know. But the flip side of that is your mistakes affect everyone. How do you keep that from being paralyzing? Uh, Semver, what's that?
0: Semantic versioning. I mean, that's a little bit of oh. a flip answer, but like, for instance, uh, has this
1: been an evolution across your
0: career too.
1: Like, I would love it if you can speak to like the ways that like senior Nat is like, oh, junior Nat, here's where you're going.
0: Oh yeah, uh, senior Nat's a lot more chill than
2: junior mm-hmm. Nat. Like that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: that's do you mean it. by more chill?
2: Right? Like, is it in terms of perfection is not a name, or is it in terms of kind of being battle hardened? Right? Like everything will get fixed.
0: Yeah. Well, junior Nat was like, we're doing these things wrong, and I don't understand why. And why are you doing it this way? What's wrong oh, with you? That's and adorable. <laughs> senior, somewhat senior Nat is more like. Interesting. Tell me more about (laughs) what this does for you. Uh, Have you considered trying this instead?
2: Yeah, Uh. I remember making that mistake when I switched on to the team that was the former ITA software team in Boston. And I was like, "You are doing Essery wrong. Here are the five things you're doing wrong." Like I literally said that the first two weeks I was on that team, Ooh, nice. and they never listened to yeah, me again.
1: But, yeah. How to yeah. win friends and influence yeah, people?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got to spend the, the first two weeks on a new
0: team, like just asking people, yeah. "Why do you do it this way? Yeah. Like, what does this do for you?" I've seen in my in your I like doing it this way, or I've I've had this experience, or like, uh, this has worked out badly for me in the past, but like. You're doing it, so why? Like, what is right? that doing? And then, for kind you?
2: of figuring out how do we pair with people, right? Like, whether mm-hmm. you're an SRE like me, or whether you're a build engineer like you, Nat. Like, we kind of have to figure out how we partner with people because we can't do everything by ourselves.
1: And SREs and build engineers are. Tightly, like very coupled. Like it's before prod and after prod, but they're the same skill sets and often the same processes and tools. And
0: mind yeah. Sets. At one point, I rolled from another one of our dog fooding teams, one of our production teams, onto the open source release integration team and spent a lot of time going, like, oh, this is what operators think of this or
2: this is what operators think of that. Which it's a really uh, valuable thing to learn. It's so valuable to rotate around, right? Like that, mm-hmm. I think, besides the I get bored itch, it's also the I want to better understand someone else's situation itch. Yeah. The thing
1: what I've noticed in you, Liz, is that you have this incredible ability to jump into any situation and just size it up immediately. This is clearly a skill set in and of itself, right? I take a while to to acclimate to new environments because I have not made a practice of that, and it's been interesting to watch you just like sail in customer. All right, you know, here's the top three things, but very nicely, right? It's it's, yeah, learning to do it
2: nicely is important. What was that expression you used the other week with involving like a velociraptor?
1: Oh yes, Liz is a velociraptor. She just enters the room, sizes up the flows of information, and how to position herself to be in the route of as much as possible without annoying anyone. Something like that.
0: Yeah, ramping up is definitely a skill. Uh, yeah. Can we swear on this? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. It's charity. Fucking, fucking majors, of course you can swear. <laughs> On the last couple of rotations, uh, uh, I keep a what-the-fuck notebook, which is a big part of how I stay chill, is I just sort of have a running log of like everything that makes me go, what the fuck, okay, it's going into the notebook. Uh, <laughs> and then later I'll either like figure out why or I'll fix it. And yeah. I have this list of stuff that I'm going to fix.
2: So. so what are the most common WTFs you encounter and what are the most common things that you tend to do when you first join a team, right? We're kind of talking about that onboarding. How do you make that smoother yourself, Nat?
0: Often it's stuff that's like... Flaky builds or workstation setup that's not quite right, or. I thing that I will often notice is the amount of pain that
2: people will subject just themselves tolerate. to, yeah, without
1: noticing, mm-hmm. just like
2: over and over, yeah, because mm-hmm. it creeps up uh, on you over time. And
1: You're just like, oh yeah, that thing that I manually do every morning before I can do anything, it's fine,
2: yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to plug some of my friends at a startup called Windmill developing a tool called Tilt and the goal of Tilt is oh. to make it one command to stand up your entire uh oh, dockerfied God. or kubernetesified development environment, have all your logs piped to one place so you can see what's going on, what's failing, right? Like it shouldn't have to be like this pipeline of manual steps you run to provision your dev what environments.
0: Yeah. You know. <laughs> we yeah, we're kind of obsessive at pivotal about having like standardized ways to do that kind of setup. So, question: If you were popped into some hypothetical place, new job, you have access
1: to none of the internal pivotal tools. No Bosch, uh, no Bosch, no concourse. We're talking to the rest of the world here. No right. Bosch, no concourse.
2: <laughs> well, um, I mean, you could probably set up concourse from sure, scratch. Yeah, but, if you yeah, have
1: to yeah. go yeah. do it from scratch, you can. But like most people, don't know what those things are. Right. Yeah. Um, imagine you're flying in to like help some. Obama for America, like need your help to fix Mm -hmm. a bill. What kinds of things do you look for? Like you've got to see like common like problems and have like a repertoire of fixes. But like what I'm getting at is there are so many people out there who have like a lot of developers, no dedicated build engineers.
0: And it's so bad that they don't know where to start. Like, what advice would you give them? Ooh, I mean that's. So I kind of walked into a system that was mostly running. The history of building engineering at Pivotal is kind of fascinating. Huh, Let me um, start with a thing. It takes an hour and a half for them to play
1: code. Sure.
2: Yeah. Is that acceptable? It depends on what kind of code it is, but probably not. Right, like the answer, Uh. like, it depends, right? Is a common, right? It's the same thing with service level objectives, right? Like, how do you know whether 3,000 milliseconds is okay or not? Which is kind of why I'm
1: asking, like, what questions do you start asking and what kind of answers do you start looking for to steer you if you get 10 questions to, like, determine your next two weeks of work? Yeah.
0: I mean, the first thing that I'm going to start with is just checking whether or not they're having retros. Ooh. And then are they. Actually, identifying real problems in the retro and And, and ways to change it. Yeah, a healthy retro is you're going to talk about some of the successes, some of the fun things that have happened that week. You're going to talk about some of the things that like bothered people. I'm a big fan of talking about feelings at work. Yeah. Mm,
2: I love how the first thing that you jump to, to <laughs> is not tools, but instead culture. I love that. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people, like organizations, are the most interesting distributed system that I have access to. Huh. So, yeah, junior engineers are always like, ugh,
2: stupid feelings. And senior engineers are just like, always go straight to the people. It's all feelings. Uh, it's all feelings. Oh. Okay. So, you st- set up people with retros, they start talking about issues. What do you do next? probably look at can you set up the real software? An
0: actual, if it's a distributed system, an actual distributed system, not like some single node baby version of it, but the real software, can you do that with a single command, so or a couple of commands? So like can you actually bring the software up, play with it, test it? Because I've been on teams that for instance, I rolled on a team once that was having a heck of a time replicating a customer problem where the customer problem was like every week, like clockwork, we turn this thing off and then we turn it back on again and it doesn't work. And the team was like, this is impossible. We can't replicate this. Why are they doing this? And I rolled on and I was like, I I have some bad news for you about the cloud uh, (laughs) and what it does. Uh, Right. So you kind of have to get things to a repeatable state, right? Yeah, they couldn't replicate the problem, even though it was a pretty simple problem, because they couldn't deploy the software. <laughs> oh, yes. So you, they they did all of their testing on a single node, right. like Dockerized version of it. So you have to be able right. to deploy the real software and get feedback, and then like kind of looking at what is your deploy cycle like? What's your minimum time to real feedback from production? Mm-hmm. And then what other sources of feedback are you getting? Like pairing. We're obsessed about pairing at Pivotal because that's the fastest possible way that you can get immediate feedback. Mm. It's interesting you that you go
1: so quickly to you have to be able to stand up a system that looks like production. I assume you mean hardware like instances like as production like as possible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I often and I'm taking a somewhat maximal stance that I don't hundred percent agree with myself here, but I will often be like, you know, most what you need is prod, well instrumented that you can, you know, understand, explain, you know, really complex. Questions and your laptop, and that's mostly what you need because most problems that I've seen, um, you can spend a lot of time trying to find them in staging. You may or may not find them because the conditions may or may not exist, but they will always exist in prod. And often, like you'll start looking for problems, you'll find different ones in staging than exist in prod. Yeah. So I think that like you run the basics on your laptop, which you know is not prod, so you don't have to like blur the lines in your head. A lot of developers start thinking that staging is prod and it's not
2: stacked. right. Exactly, it's kind of this interesting <sighs> oh. thing. Like I remember this old XKCD comic, right? You know, someone's like, "Oh, my code's compiling," and then the manager goes, "Like, okay, right?" Like, and it's like, "No, right?" Like, you know, you staging. should, right? Like, you should make yeah. your own local build blazing fast so you can yes. write a line of code and having it have it running in five or ten seconds, right? Yes. But then you have to also make sure that you can deploy that code to production with a fast oh, cycle. No. And yeah. stand it and look at it and like. Yeah, so that's actually maybe the actual
0: play, first place that I would start is: can you run your tests locally? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's a really great <laughs> great starting point. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you're seeing some of my bias there of like I've been working with package software no, that you for ship, sure, right? Sure. Uh, but also, I think you should actually be able to understand how your software behaves. Developers uh, should be able to tear down their environment and get started again from scratch and
1: like yeah. very. But quickly. also
2: that right like. In the new maturity model that Charity and I developed, right, like it's we think it's important to use these same tools to observe yes. your production environment and your local development environment, right? Like if you're not testing with the same telemetry, right, if you're leaning on looking at local verbose logs on your local laptop, you're going to have a hell of a time figuring out what's going on when it hits production, because you can't look at all those logs, or it's inordinately
0: expensive. We actually tore down the staging environment while I was on the Cloud Ops team. It was named Jeff. (laughs) <laughs> I love that because uh, it was actually a sandbox. It was like a playing environment for the ops team. Uh, uh, no, I don't. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but we got into a point where we updated the staging environment most of the time after we updated production. Right. I've seen this too,
1: so I think that staging. Honestly, it's most and there are some problems where yes, you can you know you can go prod. It's going to be destructive. It deals with deep data things that I can't mess with. Like there are cases where you absolutely need a staging environment. And configuration problems.
0: Like we're Figuration actually problems. probably going to set uh, a staging environment back up because most of our like yeah. most of our outages over the past year have been. Configuration issues that yeah. would have been caught by a really yes. simple, Rolling just like yes, smoke that's test, a really good deploy. Process. Yeah. Smoke
2: test, exactly. Yeah. And I think also for smoke tests, right? Like it's important so that they be relatively high signal to noise, right? Like yes. I think high yes. signal yes. to noise, but also not so critical that you're going to be yes. screaming if it breaks, right? Like this is the beauty of what we wind up doing at Honeycomb with kind of our dog food environment ingesting yeah. the telemetry from our production environment. Dog food,
1: we use it constantly. Mm-hmm. Because it's how we understand the customers, honeycombs, we right? Honeycomb but right?
2: if it yeah. breaks, right, you know, no end customers are affected. Exactly. It just impairs our own ability I'm to a see.
1: Huge fan of every form and flavor of dog fooding, or like yeah. trying things on yourself first.
2: The dog fooding can also
0: lead you astray if you're really different from the customers. For instance, cloud foundry engineers, like developers who are working on the thing. We install and deploy it way more than any customer ever does. Like the vast majority, probably 99% of the times that a Cloud Foundry gets stood up, it's at Pivotal or at another Cloud Foundation member developing it. And we have gotten. Newer engineers will get frustrated with uh, various rough edges on that experience, yeah. so, which is legitimate. You know, right, it's like the missing stair, right? Huh?
2: Everyone knows don't step there, except yeah. for the new engineer, right? So you really need kind of that user experience viewpoint. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also not, you know,
0: that's something that a customer is going to do once. The thing that's actually mm. really important for customers is upgrades,
2: uh, mm, which, which we never do. do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or sense. if you do do upgrades, they're much more incremental. They're not yeah. big bang. Yeah, yeah. 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 You're never yeah. going from V V1 one to V ten, right?
0: We also have things like the operations team in San Francisco sits right next to the Bosch team, sits right next to the API team. Right. Um, if something goes wrong, they can just go tap somebody on the shoulder and have the, you know, hot patch the Bosch director uh, yeah. uh, if they need to. And True. customers can't do that, so we it causes us to not notice some things uh, that are frustrating about operating yeah. our product. Uh, yeah,
1: it just goes to show that, like you know, there is no. <laughs> One answer to anything. The, the one thing about staging that we use it for is is for the UI stuff. So that you can you know deploy if you're working on the UI and the UX and stuff. Like you, putting it on your laptop is not going to give you the right experience. Whereas, deploying but it's not it's even a staging
2: right. Like for us, it is a window into real production yeah. data. Right. It's just running a different binary. Right. So it's not in the critical. Customer we do technically path, but have a
1: staging that is separate from dog food. Not anymore. We don't? Not no, anymore. No, I, no, no, I actually, a actually have anymore. a changelist
2: out to delete all the remnants of it. That's how much I know. <laughs> right, we are staging free. How much yeah. do you love deleting things, oh Liz? My uh, oh my God, it's uh, the best. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit more about the. You mentioned it takes two days to run your build pipeline from start to end. How do you, you said, and that's if it goes well, how do you diagnose when things go badly? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and not only go badly, right? Like, you know, go badly doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a hundred percent errors, right? How like do how do you debug flakiness? How do you debug, yeah, do you you debug slowness, right? Yeah. How do you Just, not have these things sneak mean? up?
0: So I could talk about that for a couple of hours probably, <laughs> sure. but I'll try to give you the short version. Usually something going wrong is a failed deploy or a failed test run. Sometimes it is a concourse failure, an underlying concourse failure, because we Run probably one of the biggest concourses that exists. So we're driving it pretty hard and we get all kinds of nice scaling feedback for them.
2: So sometimes the worker fails, sometimes it's a flaky test, sometimes it actually is bad code.
0: Yeah, there may be bad configuration, there may be a problem, there may be an actual integration problem. Like two versions don't work. Nah, okay. Um there will be a failure, and we're we're working on making this more clear. We actually have a process. Uh, we have playbooks. Uh, you can roll a new engineer onto PaaS release engineering and have them running yeah, what we call thing a release about, train. Like, this
1: category of problem, like we've seen this with a lot of our customers, Circle and and whatnot, is yeah. that it's like Tolstoy said: every success looks the same, every failure is different it's yeah. in its own special way.
0: So we do try to like during a train we'll have one person leading the whole process and when there are failures we will pull those and record them and try to group them. We're actually we've got one of our engineers Carlos is working on a tool that pulls information from the Concourse API PipeStat. A, do you do a single run per merge or per commit? No. Um we do tend to batch things Why which causes because there is that certain minimum fixed cost of running the pipelines, and I'm always the person going like, "What if we put fewer things into this batch? Like we is had it a we had one possible go to make it faster. We have made it faster. Like it used to take longer. Basically, uh-huh. we have made it faster by reducing the amount of testing that we're doing. Was that the only way?
2: I think that's really cool actually to think about, right? Like, you know, why do we, when we write a test, does it have to stick around forever, right? The right. ROI of testing yeah. is very interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's kind of one of my perpetual conversations that I'm having with people. It's like, yeah, I understand this is valuable, but is it worth it? Like, is it valuable enough to be worth the cost? And, mm. that's, and how do you like, measure kind of the cost, right? to, How do you
2: figure out which ones you're going to go after and say, is this really worth it or can I optimize it? Like, what do you do for that? So, for tests specifically, huh?
0: I'm glad you asked that. I was really interested in this question, and we use Ginkgo for most of our testing, Go testing, and Ginkgo has reporters, and so we wrote a Honeycomb reporter that every time a test runs, uh, it'll report, you know, did it pass or fail? What line did it fail? And if it failed, how long did it take? And so, for instance, when we're dealing with super flaky tests, we now can use that any Ginkgo suite. Basically, we can hook it up and get sort of a rank-ordered list of the tests that have failed the most in the last 30 days
2: or whatever it is. Oh, nice. So it's kind of the way to identify the low-hanging fruit, what's failing the most often or what's taking the most time. Interesting.
0: And that's the main way that we've been able to use honeycomb so far. But that's something that, I, in general, I would like to... I've been exploring a couple of different ways to instrument more of our concourse pipelines I mean, with Honeycomb. I'm
1: curious like what, what you guys use for observability and build pipelines yeah. because this is not something I had ever really thought about. Like I always think of, you know, observability for production. And our customers keep dragging us over towards being like, No, 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 but like we can visualize our build pipeline as a waterfall using tracing. Like Intercom, I think, was the first to like instrument their build pipeline and drop their entire deploy from commit till it's in prod, to four and a half minutes, using Ruby on Rails. Wow!
2: I know, like I'm. And it's still just those little things, right? Like figuring mm-hmm. out what is the what's the distribution of latencies for this particular yep. span type, right? Like I'm it's kind so of, yeah, I'm so blown away by
1: that. And like, like all of the advanced teams, like almost all of them, tend to come back to us eventually and go, "Oh, hey, we're using Honeycomb for our build pipeline," which is nothing I ever would have
0: predicted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to start with measuring it because otherwise, you're just sort of like throwing dirts in the dark. Oh, uh, high cardinality even, problem.
2: Right. It yeah. is a high cardinality problem, but it is not that expensive of a problem, right? Like the yes. amount of data that's produced relative to yes. the cost to run your tests in a VM, right? That's tiny.
0: Yeah, it totally is. Several times in the last couple of months, I've had a team come to me and was like, "They have flaky tests. They heard that I have something for it." I'm like, "Here, get set up with this. It's very exciting." And then they come back and they're like, "How much does this cost? Like, is this uh, going to be okay?" And I'm like, Seventy dollars a month. Uh, you're not going to use even all of that, and they're like, "How do we make this more efficient?" And I'm like, "Have you actually just like check how much you're paying for it right yeah. now? Check how much data that they're that you're using." And They're like, "Oh, it's like less than a gigabyte." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's less than. It's very small. Yeah. Very very small." <laughs> yeah, actually, checking first before you start optimizing it makes so a huge that, difference. Yeah, yes, Premature optimization
2: is the worst. That's yeah, true.
0: I, I
1: find that um, a lot of
0: co- companies also.
1: The thing is that they instrument to look for the answer to one question. Mm-hmm. And then once they pick up the rock, they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Look what lives under there. And it's just thing after thing after thing. And sometimes they blame us. They're like, oh man, until you had honeycomb, we did not know. And I'm like, well, it was your customers knew, like your users knew.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I came out of, I started as a software tester, as an exploratory tester. And testers will talk about, you know, breaking the system. Testers don't break the system.
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> testers software reveal <laughs> right. Like software
0: is just always broken. Yes. None of it works. it's uh, broken.
2: Right, but at the same time, it's kind of our obligation as software engineers to think about which groups of people are worst affected by the breakages in our software. Right? Is it yes. concentrated on one user? Right? Or is it evenly spread out? It's An almost yeah. never evenly a spread spike
1: out. Spike is a spike, and then like. You don't know until you start disaggregating it. Is it everyone who's impacted more or less evenly? Almost certainly not. Is it 10% of users who are like completely locked out? Is it like you don't know? This is what bugs me about dashboards. This is why I hate dashboards. Though there's a spike and people just assume that they know what it is because they've seen something before that looks like it and it's too hard and expensive to actually go figure out for sure because you have to jump into logs and like all this detailed shit or you could use honeycomb.
0: <laughs> I have this problem where once I understand that a problem is solvable, not yeah. even solved, just solvable, I get bored immediately and I'm like, well, somebody else can do that. Figured no. it out. <laughs> Which is why I gravitate towards people problems, basically. But it's also why I've been really attracted, to, why I have been attracted to honeycomb and similar tools that let you... Collect information for problems you didn't even know that you had necessarily. Well, and you
1: started out as a tester. Yeah. And like the workflow. Yeah. When I was trying to figure out how how the fuck to describe what we were doing right mm-hmm. before I landed on observability, one of the things that I was playing with was BI for systems. Because mm-hmm. in BI in business intelligence, they never would have been satisfied with here are a dozen dashboards. Now, whenever you have something happening in your business, just fit them to one of these, or worst case scenario, we'll make a new dashboard to describe that. Because. Every scenario is so specific and so unique and so new, and you need to like take one small step, look at the answer, and then, based on the answer, take another small step and like follow the breadcrumbs to the specific answer every time
2: right. The answer to can our system answer this question shouldn't either be yes or no. Yeah. It should be, you know How it far? might take us you know a minute to figure out. It might take us ten minutes to figure out. It might even heaven forbid take half an hour to figure out, right. But you know, never should the answer Shouldn't be, be like we can't do that, right?
1: Or revert to SSHing in and an S tracing your binary is a thing that I used to do all the time at Parse.
2: So how often do you have to go and look at individual concourse workers? I have a confession to make. Uh, um, I've been spending
0: the last couple of weeks deep in manager leveling, so I haven't been like hands on uh, with the uh, the software in in a little bit, but not. I don't know, once a week it's riding uh, at most. A
1: bicycle. Uh, yeah. Any, see, the thing is that anytime you have to do that, you know in your heart that you failed in some way. Anytime you have to look, if you have to go, tr- trace it all the way down to the end, well, this is how I used to feel like. Yeah. If I had to SSH into a machine and look at some log or some state in the machine, it meant, and it's not a catastrophic failure, but it just means that my tools have failed to. Answer my question. is a your your
2: instrumentation, right? Sometimes yes. the onus is on you to instrument, and yes. the way you get that signal is: am I having to do manual work too often? Yes.
0: That's kind of what's great. That's one of the things that I love about working on developer tooling, though, yes. is that like it kind of makes it your job to fail, so then your customers mm-hmm. don't have to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and like every time you you do some debugging, that's like, well, this was really hard. Then you're like, how can we make this easier for the operator?
1: And you're never just solving for one. You're solving mm-hmm. a category problem, and
0: I enjoy
2: that. So, as we reach the kind of end of our time here, are there any kind of closing thoughts that you wanted so to talk about? I
1: wanted to. So, you mentioned briefly just now being a manager.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Would you
1: like to talk about the career arc of someone who identifies as a build engineer or release engineer? Because I don't think that people really understand that as a career.
0: Yeah. So, I think in my context, it's something that often people will come into for a year, year and a half, two years, and then go back Tour to duty. another team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what there do you are, think of that? I think that's good. I think that's healthy. Yeah. Um, you, we need people who understand the system yeah. on the release it's team. It's a great way to do that. It's the
2: same way that I love to talk to people about, hey, you should do a site reliability yeah. engineering rotation. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I also think that this is kind of a. There's a handful of us who think this is kind of an emerging yeah. specialty, an oh, emerging good. kind of area, um, and this. are <laughs> kind of interested in how do we take this and make it a career? Like, what does that look is like? Is there a uh, community
1: or a group or someplace that people who are interested in this can join and find out more or
2: anything? Oh gosh, uh,
0: there's one. not yet, but there probably should be. There it is, there is one. one internal pivotal, but yeah, we should Maybe start should make, uh, I think we should a kind yeah, of skilled. having that uh, idea
2: of a common community of practice, right? Yeah, yeah. Or even right, like things sometimes get started with O'Reilly books, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, where is the O'Reilly book for the, modern release modern engineering? Are
0: engineering. anchors thinking about writing it. Uh, can I rant for a second about spreadsheets? Yes. Please. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we touched a little bit on people trying to fix things without measuring at all huh? and you just end up <laughs> fixing a little bit here uh-huh. and there and you never make traction on like the real Cutting problem so, off by accident. And we talked a little bit about, you know, making it easy for people to measure, like it's good to measure. The real reason that I love honeycomb, the real reason that I wrote this Ginkgo reporter was to rescue people from dumping data into spreadsheets that they never look at cuz often when people have flaky tests, they start test collecting data, data oh. by hand in a spreadsheet oh. uh,
1: I'm sad now.
0: I don't even care if you never oh. look at the automatically collected data.
2: Just don't be spending hours of engineer time a week. Uh, a right? It's like you know, would you rather invest in the right tools, or would you rather waste a bunch of your engineers' time on inadequate solutions?
0: Well, and it's so much better. Like I, I was taught by my first engineering manager, basically, like it's better to do things in a way that's a little bit slower to start with, but lets you, you know. Have fun that lets you write code mm-hmm. uh, than it is to do something like painful and boring and not learn anything.
2: No. Uh. No,
1: that's true. I have seen people, now that you mentioned, I've seen people on their laptops spin up a copy of not MySQL, but the uh, Microsoft version of that. MS SQL. MS SQL and dump in telemetry data and start yeah. shifting through it. It's yeah. equally sad.
0: And you can't take that too far. Like there's definitely premature optimization, all that. But yep.
2: like, right, uh, like okay. is, it, is, it, is it prototyping? or are you actually yes. making this load bearing right if it's right. load yes. bearing you need to consider Oof. it appropriately
0: yeah but you want to always be learning and you want to make it like really easy to collect the data that you need because otherwise you're not going to change what data you're collecting if you need yet. it at once you're right need it again. So,
2: mm, and i love that idea right of Having your instrumentation never be a fixed thing, right? Having your testing coverage never be a fixed thing. I love that idea, right? Yeah. Continuous process.
0: Yeah. I can go in, you know, we started collecting information on the acceptance tests, and then I was like, oh, we kind of want to have the version of the CLI that generated this. And that was 30 minutes, 15 minutes in a line of bash. And most of the bash was, most of the 15 minutes, most of the 15 minutes was learning how to write the bash. And then I learned that (laughs) forever.
2: No, you didn't. Right? Like, how easy easy it is to add a new column to your data. Right. Right, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And once you get it started, you just sort of like build things
2: up over time. Uh,
0: Thank you for being here, Nat.
2: It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllyCast. That's 011YCast.